0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: After all, it's hard enough being me, being Goldie, who has been known for all these decades as being funny and sometimes bubble-headed. So, you know, my credits don't work too well with the, uh, <laughs> with the presentation, no matter what, because people don't know all my interests outside the camera. So I wanted to have really good research, and it works like a dream. This is a simple program that has amazing results. This is my little, what do you call it? gift (laughs) for children and for the world.
0: That's Goldie Hawn, of course. And the program she's talking about is called Mind Up. It's an ambitious project for schools with the goal of making kids more resilient and optimistic. In the late 1960s, Goldie became the signature star of the television show Laugh-In and then went on to make dozens of films, including that wonderful movie Private Benjamin. So it may be a surprise to find out that she's also the mastermind behind a deeply researched and widely adopted program to help school children manage stress and regulate their emotions. We had a fun conversation on Zoom. Goldie, this is so great that you could join me today. Thank you.
1: I'm so happy to be here. It's just really, really, really fun to see you and to be talking to you. I'm excited.
0: We're on Zoom and I see some little person in the back on a chair. Who is that?
1: Oh, that's Benny. That's Benny. Benny's my boy. He's just right there. You know, dogs are so loyal.
0: What brand is he? He is a mixture. Oh, that, those are the best kind. Aren't they the best?
1: They're the best kind. And what I love about the mix is that it's a, they're strong. I'm a mongrel. Are you? <laughs> what?
0: Well, you got you to give me the terms again. What, what, in what way are you a mongrel?
1: I come from a Jewish woman from um, uh, Hungary. Uh, Presbyterian daddy from uh, the south.
0: Wow did they did they work that out?
1: Uh, they worked it out pretty good, pretty good. They worked it out. We talk about communication. Sometimes it you know lacked a little bit of communication.
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, my father is, has Italian heritage and my mother Irish. Oh, there you go. So, And that's a very common combination from those years, I think.
1: Uh, and it's, it's a good one because actually uh, the Irish are, are, you know, very buoyant and, and, and big and can be boisterous and funny and, you know, smart and quick-minded. Uh, and the Italians need those people.
0: <laughs> you talk about buoyant. That's you. How are you doing? Are you still buoyant during the uh, pandemic? Are you managing to stay up in spirits?
1: Ah, uh, very much so. You know, that's a choice, really. And um, when I was 11 years old, I made a choice. Actually, I didn't make a choice. It came to me because somebody said to me, "You know, I was a ballet dancer." And, and that's what I did. I studied dance from three all the way up, and I, I entered this industry dancing in a, in a chorus, and I was a professional dancer. So for me, um, you know, I knew I kind of knew what I was going to do, right? Um, but I got a question once from an older person when I was 11 and they said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a dancer, a a, a movie star? (laughs) That was ridiculous. But I said, no, I want to be happy. And literally I wanted to, to, to do dancing, but I wanted to be happy.
0: I was surprised to learn recently that you put a pause on your career. To go to Canada, is this right so your son could develop as a hockey player? So, I mean, to talk about putting what you, what you can become over what you do for a living, to look for happiness instead of putting the job ahead of that, that's, that's a real acting out of that idea.
1: It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, you. I think one has to really understand what makes you happy. What are the things in life that actually make you happy, that help add to your ability to feel joy?
0: So what are they for you?
1: Uh, it it really is doing what what I wish. For instance, I want to be a mother. I, I wanted to be the best mother I could be. Um, that would make me happy. I wanted to create... Uh, and help nurture children uh, of my own that actually did well and that were happy themselves. So when I decided to move from L.A., it was because the love of my passion of being mother and caring and a nurturer uh, superseded a lot of things in terms of what I was doing with career. Keep in mind that when a woman gets to a certain age, right, that age is uh, sometimes that some, there's a shelf life. And I, the question was, are you going to wait for the phone to ring? Is that what mm. your life is going to be about? Or is it going to be about being proactive to do the things that you actually want to do? And the other part of life. I remember I called some actresses who were very well known. And I, we were all turning 50. And I called them and I said, we're all turning 50 within two months of each other. So what else are we going to do in our life? What do you want to do? And what do you want to do? Because for me, it was like there's third acts. You just yeah. Are you going to do the same thing your whole life? Is that, is that what you want to do? So if we have a choice, what else would you rather be? I said, I'd love it to be an archaeologist, or I would like to study greater aspects of psychology. Um, these are things that I'm interested in. So the idea of just waiting around because you're getting older and and a lot of the roles for people like that, um, you know, w- no matter what, I would say also for women can be extremely limiting. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to move on with my life with a proactive way of positive looking and thinking, well, the first thing I'm going to do is be the best mom and Kurt, the best dad we could be. And we took Wyatt up to Vancouver because he was a hockey player and he wanted his chance to get in the NHL. And we thought, well, he deserves to have his dream, at least try it. And I am so grateful because living in Vancouver was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And also that's when I stopped. I stopped the rat race. I stopped the having to do things. And I created Mind Up, my program up there. In my meditation room, where I would go every morning, I'd take my coffee and I would go in there and I would meditate. And I remember in a lot of my meditations, I witnessed my thoughts and they were all about how I was going to do something good for the world.
0: So you got the idea for doing mind up while you were meditating.
1: It came up while I was meditating, but the studies and the witnessing and the awareness of my world around me was disturbing. In other words... I was reading books on negative emotions and how they affect your life. I was reading books on psychology. I was going to different conferences on the brain and neurobiology and how our neurobiology actually affects our life, our decision making, our anger issues, our ability to to basically be depressed and stay depressed. We had no no understanding of the brain enough to know that the brain is quite resilient if we actually have a conversation with it. So because we have this aspect of being able to see ourselves, as they call it, metacognition, we can look at ourselves, we can witness ourselves, and we can make changes if we want because of the plasticity of the brain. So therefore, um, I ask the question, if we have all of this capability, why don't our young children know about it at an early age? Why are we keeping understanding the brain, the basics of our emotional system in our brain to our children? So they then gained these tools for their toolbox for life. So I brought in neuroscientists, I brought in educators, right? Because I, you know, I knew quite a few. And this was all instinctive because honestly, in those days, it's almost 20 years ago, Alan, is that I decided to do this and everybody thought I was wacky because they thought you'll never get uh, neuroscience into a kindergarten class ever. And you'll never get quote unquote meditation in because people are afraid of it. They think it has something to do with religion. Well, meditation strengthens more brain fitness. It has nothing to do with religion. So, I did it. I put four programs together, right? First you learn the brain, then you do mindfulness, brain break, we call it. Then we do mindful of our senses, and then we do our place in the world, which is positive psychology, perspective taking, empathy building, um, all of these things. And so for me, it was like maybe the greatest script I ever produced, really.
0: How does it fit into a school program? is it uh, is it part of the school day is it does it take place after school how do you, how do you uh, reach the kids
1: it's embedded first of all we train the teachers so the teachers take the program then they go into the classroom and they create mind up in the classroom so it becomes a mind up classroom which means that all the children understand various things about their brain. They take three brain breaks a day, not one meditation, all that. It's three three three-minute brain breaks. But they now know what's going on with their brain. They know that the amygdala is quieting down. They know their breathing actually relaxes the brain and their body. They know that the executive function, which is the prefrontal cortex, they know that that lights up. And now they're ready to learn. And so they understand sort of the pathway of creating a relaxation method in order for the brain to respond to better learning and memory and, and also self-regulation in their emotional construct. So it's, it's, it's all about that. Then they do, they put it into their math. For instance, one of our teachers did jumping jacks for mindful movement. And he was doing jumping jacks and doing two times two is four. So he would do all, they would all, you know, say that. And the kids loved it. And, you know, other ways of like mindful listening. We would play like a violin concerto or they would go outside and listen to birds and notice all the things that they are listening to, which actually attends to attention in the brain where children are now not necessarily being able to attend because our concentration, our ability to focus is much more compromised now. So it gives the brain an ability to attend for a longer period of time.
0: So it's incorporated into the whole school day. It sounds like.
1: Yes. So it's the ethos of the classroom. It's the ethos of the school. Everybody is trained, including administration. Um, and it's like, it's it's just, it's really, it's almost mind up for life, you know. It's a, a great way of, of, of preparing for your life. And school is what it should be doing.
0: About how many classrooms have you been in now in, in these years? Thousands. And not just in the United States, I think, right?
1: Right. We're in Hong Kong. We're in Serbia. Uh, we're in... Um, we're in Finland, we're in the UK, a lot in the UK, Ireland, Canada, Australia. Even now we have four schools in Uganda. It's a very simple program, Alan. It's not hard. We don't want teachers to have to think too much about too many things. This is a simple program that has amazing results. And that's why we want to keep it simple, stupid, I mean, let's just go in there and learn these ways of being and show your children how to be grateful. How to, you know, basically write a gratitude journal. and Because gratitude actually emits dopamine. And kindness does too, acts of kindness. Dopamine, serotonin. So now the children reported that they could make themselves happier. Well, that just made me so happy because... That's what I wanted. I wanted to be happy in my life, right? And if children could actually recognize the fact that they could feel happy or sad, and that in some ways that's a choice. And also it's okay to be sad, but we don't want to stay in sadness. We want to be able to find a way to work ourselves out of it.
0: Tell me about the research that has validated this. It's it's not just uh, people saying, we do it in the class and we think the kids look better. You've actually done randomized studies, right?
1: In fact, we did our biggest study before it even went out because I knew that if it didn't have great marks and it didn't work, that would be the worst thing I could do. Because after all, it's hard enough being me, being Goldie, who has been known for all these decades as being funny and sometimes bubble-headed by the early days and, you know, realizing that I'm, you know, funny and and all of those different adjectives that I could could have, right, um, doesn't necessarily say brain science. It doesn't necessarily that I that I'm a school teacher. It doesn't say that I'm a researcher. Um, so you know, my credits don't work too well with the uh, <laughs> with the presentation, no matter what, because people don't know all my interests outside the camera. Um, so um, I wanted to have really good research, and when we researched it, the one woman who researched at that time. She said, for 20 years. Now it's many, many more years she's been researching. She said, I've never seen, and she researched a lot of of SEL, social and emotional programs, anything like this. So she actually created a bigger uh, uh, canvas, more students, and decided to do another random study to see if it, we were just, we just couldn't believe it. And it worked like a dream. The children were much more able to connect in groups to work together well, and that means communication. That means that they're able. Oh, I'm getting chills on it, but that's that. That's we're helping them communicate with each other, feel safe with each other, and 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 learn not to be not to feel judged or outside the circle. So I think this was a, a really good a good one that we learned. But there were so. Many. Our executive function we did with Dr. Adele Diamond. That was a clinical study um, on how well did the ex- did the executive function work. Well, it lined up kids worked much better. They were quicker on the answers. They were more focused an- uh, in the way that they answered the questions. I mean, and the control group was completely all over the place.
0: And these were randomly chosen kids. Yes, exactly. That's fascinating.
1: So... This should be in every school. I'm going to go big. We have to be able to have programs that will help the mental stability of our children so they can learn, so we can be competitive in science and math and English. So this is, this is my little, what do you call it, um, gift <laughs> for children and for the world. And I, you know, I'll be long gone, uh, but I sure hope that this is the trailblazing kind of way of looking at education.
0: When we come back, I have a chance to try out Goldie's Brain Break for myself. And it puts a big smile on my face after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience And also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid... You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldis Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
2: On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. 13 pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello, Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello, Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7pm Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's
0: EndBlindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Goldie Hawn. This just occurred to me, so if you don't like the idea, don't do it. Could you give me a little mind-break exercise now so I, I get the feeling of what it is?
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. So... What we're going to do now is we're going to take our brain break. Oh, oh, this is great. I have a thing. I've uh, I've got a chime. The reason we use a chime in the classroom is because it gives the children an ability to hold on to a focal point. And what we do is we say, okay, when we hit the chime, we close our eyes, and I want you to listen to the chime as long as you can. And when you don't hear it anymore, just turn your hands over and start following your breath. Follow your breath in and out.
0: Turn your hands over, meaning what? Palms up, you mean?
1: You show that it's how you finish listening. So it's a Uh. way also of of gauging, you know, how long they were able to listen. And Uh. one of the areas is that we've learned is that when children get used to being calm, they can hear it for a longer period of time. Uh-huh. A lot of kids that are anxious will hit the will, they'll head it and then they just fidget. You know, they they don't listen and they turn their hands over and that's it. But the this chime is still chiming. But then when they get more practiced, they calmer, they begin to know they can listen longer. And we know because we see them turn their hands over.
0: When I turn my hands over, I start paying attention to my breathing.
1: Right. So then you start understanding. Now you pay attention to your breath. And you take your nice deep breaths, three of them, and let it go. Another one, and let it go. So here we go, and then another one, let it go. And I tell the children, and we explain to them, that thoughts are what happens in the brain. We think all the time. The brain thinks all the time. And that means that when you have a thought that comes into your brain and you think about it, Just look at it, let it go like a cloud, and come back to focusing on your breathing.
0: Okay, all right. I'm ready for the chime.
1: Okay, ready for the chime, (laughs) Alan. Okay. (laughs) Now you follow your breath. Relax your body. Let your thoughts go and come back to your breath. Okay, so now we open our eyes. Put a smile on your face.
0: (laughs) I'm smiling because they feel good.
1: Yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? And the kids feel good. And, and adults feel good. We all feel good. Um, and that, that's because we've done something really good for ourselves. And it's important. And even those three minutes, you know, sometimes I don't have time to meditate. So I'll, I'll do it throughout the day. I'll take five minutes and sit quietly and do, do my breathing and follow my breath and relax my body into the chair and five minutes, three times a day is wonderful. So we don't have to be, you know, sit in a, you know, whatever. We don't have to have a pillow. We don't have to have, to have a nice chair and relax. It's not difficult. And, and, and I think now that children know, sometimes they'll say, they think their teacher forgot their brain break. <laughs> we have it in preschool. So we have preschool, kindergarten, up to eighth grade. And there's another research project going on now. Uh, where they're, tr- they're looking at preschool and kindergarten over a five-year period of having that in their class to see if it changed the trajectory of their um, ability to emotionally regulate and their aspect of positivity in the classroom. And
0: I think in one research effort, I think I read that their scores went up in reading. Yes, and math. And math. That's interesting. Interesting. So, so the ability to self-regulate really enables them to study with a clearer mind, I guess.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, you know it just does. You know? it is, it's interesting in terms of and, and what what, we're, what you're doing you know with the university and it's so beautiful. because um, communication is everything. And it it really does, it will will help even in the act of communicating because we often have reactivity and oftentimes reactivity is something that will mitigate the ability to actually listen and also to handle a situation appropriately. So when you feel angry or somebody's saying something you don't agree with or any of these things that oftentimes stop the ability to communicate, therefore stop the ability to reach a peaceful solution. Or a resolution, or a compromise of some kind, um, in inside of you know how we how we regulate, and um, you know so I think that these kinds of practices are important uh, when it comes to human relations.
0: As as you know, communication is really something I'm devoting a lot of my life to in the improvisation exercises that we do, which is the not only the basis of better communication as we as we teach it it's not only the basis of a connection that you make in an effort to communicate better it's the basis of the message of how you formulate the message itself you do it through the connection you are aware of what the other person is going through while you're talking to them you're you're listening to them more than you're more than you're speaking at them
1: you know You're right. And, and, and I was talking about listening the other day about how important it is to listen because we jump on people. We don't really hear them. We're not really tuned into an empathetic connection to them to know that, you know, we we're there. Therefore, we don't know how to navigate around, uh, the messaging. Right. Um, and that, that was something that I thought about because when we act, when we're in a scene, I found that the listening
0: is more important than the acting. That's what I found too. That it is the acting. To me, it is the acting. There's a there's an old saying among actors that you you must have heard and may use yourself, is is to say, my performance is found in the other person's eyes.
1: Yes, that's beautiful. Oh my God! I mean, it it is so interesting. I remember when I did Private Benjamin, um, and. There was an the editing, the first edit was not very good, and it didn't have many laughs mm. in it. And mm. what's interesting is, is that oftentimes what was the joke was on the other person. In as we say, in the eyes, the facial expression, that was the broom chink, that was the drum beat, that was what made it funny. Not necessarily what the person was doing, it was the reaction. Mm. To what the person is doing, and it's the same with with drama. So, um, it's such an important lesson. And I, you know, I can know when I'm working with someone, and they're not listening to me.
0: <laughs> it's murder. It's, you, have, you have you have to start acting as if the person's listening to you, which is hard to do.
1: Well, that's that's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach because we're acting and we're trying to overcome a problem. Yeah, that's
0: right. right. <laughs> That was the basis for me, and I wonder if it was for you, of understanding the importance of the connection to the other actor on stage right. or in any, any acting situation, understanding how important that was for something to happen, for something to transpire between you. And that made me understand that if we could get, starting with scientists and then physicians, get them to have that same contact with the people they're trying to communicate with. Totally. It changes, it changes the whole thing.
1: It does change the whole thing because, you know, when we talk about communication, I'm looking at what you were doing here but also what we have to do in order to you know everywhere from negotiating from countries to the various things that we want to be able to do how do we not light fires how do we how do we read the other because reading the other is is actually it's empathetic reactivity it's also having levels of compassion Um, we really have to, I think, learn and look without judgment, without judgment, because there's a lot of ways that we can also mitigate our ability to get our messaging across because we are in judgment, you know, and sometimes we're not going to agree with the people that we're trying to, to speak with about any something, a problem or solving something right? Um, Or also someone you love. I mean, all of those things, when we get into a relationships or or doctor-patient relationships or lawyer relationships with your, you know, I mean, we talk about this thing called bedside manner, you know? Well, bedside manner is compassion. Bedside manner is a way of learning how to put your words and your heart together, not just your vocabulary
0: exactly and it's listening if you don't believe you're being listened to you're liable not to take the medicine the doctor prescribes you know because you, you don't you, you don't listen back yeah exactly exactly i really am loving this conversation but we're getting toward the end of our time and we we usually end our shows with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. And they're not gotcha questions, and they're not embarrassing. <laughs> Here's the first one. What do you wish you really understood?
1: Quantum physics.
0: Oh, that's great. Quantum physics. You know, Richard, I played Richard Feynman on the stage, and he was a, he was a leading light in quantum physics. And he said in one of his books, if you understand quantum physics, you haven't been paying attention.
1: (laughs) It's so true.
0: It's so counterintuitive. It's just, it's like an endless puzzle. So so it is fun. Okay, number two. How do you tell somebody they have their facts wrong?
1: That may be right or wrong. I'm not sure, you know. It's an interesting perspective. Um, I know that I heard it differently, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we all see things from a different angle.
0: So the world is flat.
1: (laughs) I would say, listen, here's what you do. Prove it to yourself and just keep walking.
0: (laughs) And in 10 years, you'll get back right back to where you started. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: Hmm. That's a good one. I guess I suppose, um, why haven't you ever got married?
0: <laughs> oh, well, so many people are. It's not that strange a question, but it's a strange one to you. Okay, what's the answer to that? Might as well get into that.
1: Because um, I've been married twice and it didn't work. uh uh-huh. So marriage I think can be more big business than it is a way that wake up every morning and know that there's nothing binding you except love.
0: Nicely said. I have I'm I'm in the marriage camp but that that's nicely said. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Leave the room. Just turn around and go. No,
1: it's like listen I've got something to do. I this is very, really interesting but I I have to attend to something.
0: And it's not here.
1: It's not here. <laughs> <laughs> or I could just say, "Stop talking."
0: You did say that once. It was somebody who
1: could not stop talking on an airplane, and uh, that's you know. <gasps> I finally I said, "Could you stop talking, please? I'm trying to rest my mind."
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Once I had to tell somebody, uh, I'd like to have a conversation. That's where you talk, and then I talk, and then you talk. and <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> okay number five you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know how do you strike up a real conversation with that person
1: well uh, first start off with you know you know I'm I'm happy to meet you you know and I don't have a problem I mean in in terms of striking it up talking about something that may have happened recently uh, you know talk about um, you know uh, various different wine conversations. We're drinking wine. I love this wine. Are you a wine lover? Um, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, every now and then not often though, I I don't usually ask people what they do. I I just don't. It, I I think it's meddling and it doesn't matter, uh, because a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So what difference does it make what you do or what your name is or anything? Um, And then, you know, I just, it just is, I just strike up conversations. I, I, my mother said to me, Goldie doesn't know a stranger and it's actually true. I can talk to anybody, you know, it's like that. So I like people a lot. So I don't ever have trouble striking up a conversation.
0: That's great. What gives you confidence? Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, that's really, that's a good question. Um, what gives me confidence is, I guess you could say, I, I you know, there, there, there are things I'm confident about and things I'm not confident about, you know, whether it's our knowledge on certain things or whatever. But by nature, I'm pretty confident. But I think it starts young. And, and I think confidence happens when you're much younger and, and how you're reared. Um, and, you know, because I was a dancer... I think that what gives me confidence, like a great sense of confidence, is that when my body is fit, when I feel fit of body, when I walk into a room, this is why when Katie was little, I wanted to make sure that she had ballet lessons, because it is nice to walk into a room with your shoulders squared off and feeling like there's some energy in there. And I think that it really is, you know, how is it that we sort of understand to how to rev up our own internal energy, our our engine, if you will? Um, so that's kind of where I feel confident is, is not just my mind. It's really also in my, in my body.
0: Last question. What book changed your life?
1: Yeah. The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. Mm. That book changed my life. I was very anxious. I, I, it was right on my first show. Um, I didn't know what was happening to me because suddenly I was out of a dancing very quickly and into a whole new world. Um, and it was called good morning world, oddly enough, the show. Um, and I was, uh, anxiety. I, I was experiencing some panic attacks and things like that. Um, which is another story. Um, but I read that book, and I felt that I met my, my own heart, and I felt very connected to the art of loving, and it was very powerful.
0: That's great. This has been such a good conversation. I've had so much fun. Me
1: too. I'm so happy we got together.
0: Me too. I'm so glad you can make the time. Thanks so much, Golden.
1: You're welcome. And thank you for asking such great questions.
0: This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Goldie Hawn has a long list of television and movie credits and a bunch of awards to go with them. And now, as we've heard, she has a great passion for Mind Up, the signature program of the Goldie Hawn Foundation. You can find out how it works, including a new project in this COVID era to bring its program to schools virtually, at mindup.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I tell neuroscientist and mosquito maven, Leslie Boshole, that I seem to be one of those lucky people who are hardly bothered at all by mosquitoes. Is that just my imagination?
3: It is not your imagination. So it's something that every citizen scientist notices and it's been documented in my lab and many other labs. So there are people who are mosquito magnets uh, and there's people like you, lucky people like you, that uh, you're either actively repellent to them or they ignore you. <laughs> I think you're a lovely person, Alan, but, but, but you are repellent to mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> there was this funny hierarchy in the human race where it's a whole range from people who are actively repellent, who are very rarely bitten, and then people who are really bothered by them. You could be the most attractive person at a particular picnic, and be the one attacked by the mosquitoes. But then maybe the next week, you play tennis with someone who is much more attractive than you are, and then you will feel like the person who's being ignored. So a really fascinating scientific problem.
0: It's a problem Leslie Vosshall and her colleagues are coming up with some surprising ways to crack and to develop new weapons to defeat humankind's deadliest enemy. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.